And let's take our Bibles and invite you to turn with me. We have an Old Testament and then a New Testament reading. If you don't have your Bible with you, you can use the one provided right in front of you in the Purack. We begin with Psalm 97, page 499, which is then quoted in our New Testament reading in Hebrews chapter 1. But first, Psalm 97. Psalm 97, the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him, righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around, his lightnings light up the world, the earth sees and trembles, the mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness, and all the people see his glory. All worshipers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. That is the verse that is quoted in Hebrews 1. Worship him, all you gods. Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice. Because of your judgments, O Lord, for you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You're exalted far above all gods. O you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. Now turning to Hebrews chapter 1, page 1001 in the church Bible. Hebrews chapter 1, we're focusing exclusively on verse 6. Uh, But for context, let's just begin in verse 1 again. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Thus far, the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word for us today. We're picking right up uh, where we left off last time. If you're visiting this week or you weren't here last week, we began an Advent series um, of the Son. He says, this is about what God has to say, the Father, God the Father has to say about his Son. It's his estimation of the Son. And we're looking at Hebrews chapter 1, where there are seven quotations from the Old Testament where the author of Hebrews says, if you want to know what God the Father thinks about his son, look at these verses. 
So we looked at the first five last week. Today we look at verse six. What does the father have to say about the son? Well, here, quite simply, he says the son is to be worshipped. He is to be worshipped. And in the immediate context of this verse, he's to be worshipped by angels specifically. Remember, uh, the author is particularly trying to assert the authority or the supremacy, the superiority of Christ over angels, the, the, the These Jewish believers, they're Christians, but they have a Jewish background. They're really interested, obsessed with angels. What's all, you know, they want to know everything they can about angels. And he's trying to show them that the son is is more superior than angels. And he does that now by referencing Psalm 97, which he interprets to mean that uh, the angels should worship Christ. And we'll get to that in a moment because you probably picked up that that's not exactly what we read from Psalm 97. But just hang in there first. I want to consider the uh, sentence that introduces the quotation. So we're looking at verse 6. And I want to look at that first sentence before the quotation. When he brings the firstborn into the world. So our first heading today. The firstborn enters the world. That's the first thing we're considering. The firstborn enters the world. Last time we saw that the phrase quoted in verse 5, Today I have begotten you, did not mean that there was a time in which God was not the father of the son. God the father and the son did not have this father-son relationship. And then after being begotten, he suddenly became the son of God. He is the eternally begotten son of God. And so we were asking, what does that mean? Today I have begotten you. Well, even though he was always the son, uh, he wasn't always recognized to be the son. And so we saw that today I begotten you. That's a declaration. Today I declare who you really are before the watching world. And we saw that's primarily in the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ because he's always the son. He always has been. He always will be. He is always the son. And yet, here's what we learn in verse 6. Although he's always been the son, he has not always been in the world. And so this verse does specifically refer to the incarnation, when he came into the world. That's not when God begot him, begat him, begat him, one of those words. That's not when that happened, not the incarnation. But the incarnation is when the son comes into the world, when the firstborn comes into the world. And two things are worthy of note from this sentence. I want us to think about two things. Who sends and who is sent? First, who sends? It says, when he brings the firstborn into the world. He, who? The father. The father is the one who sends the son or brings the son into the world. Who sent the son? God the father did. Now, why is that significant? Maybe that seems obvious to some of us. But it is significant for our conception of the character of God, the nature of God, the very heart of God. Uh, Follow along with me here, right? Though Christians rightly affirm the doctrine of the Trinity, that we do believe in an undivided, unified Godhead, uh, that while three persons, each person shares in the same essence... Even though we believe in that, we can sometimes practically approach God as though there was this major division in the Godhead, particularly between the Father and the Son. How so? Well, we think God the Father, uh, maybe we we wouldn't express it like this, but we can sometimes implicitly think 
Um, or sometimes we state it outright that the father is that mean, old, hateful God uh, from, from the Old Testament who sort of, you know, gets his kicks from uh, sending people to hell for just trying to have a good time. There's this mean God, this austere God of judgment and hate. But then God the Son comes in. He sees how unreasonable his dad is being. And so he steps in and he, he takes the blow for us. He assuages the wrath of God. And so we can kind of have this, this, this view where God the Father is, is mean and, and really wants to condemn us, but God the Son changes his mind. But that's not what the Bible teaches about the gospel. John Calvin says, God is the fountain of love. If there is love in the world anywhere to be expressed or experienced, it is coming from God. This is who he is. First John, God is love. And it's because he is love that he, also simultaneously being the wrathful and just God that he is, enabled a way for sin to be dealt with and sinners to be delivered. That comes from God. And so we rejoice in this line that it is the Father who brings his firstborn into the world. Or Galatians 4 says that when the fullness of time had come, God sent his Son into the world. Because this means, beloved, that God, truly all of God, not just a part of God, but, but God in his glorious, tri-personal essence is loving, is gracious, is merciful. He does not desire the death of any. He wants all to come to a saving knowledge. And so this is the plan of our triune God to send the Son, the Son to do the work of redemption, the Spirit to apply that to our hearts. God is a God of love. We even heard it earlier in our service. For God so loved the world that he gave his Son. And so it's significant. Who sends? The Father sends. And then we ask, well, who is sent? Well, the Son, obviously, but notice the language that Hebrews 1, verse 6 uses. Hebrews 1, 6 does not say when he brings his Son into the world. Rather, it uses the term firstborn. Well, if he's the eternally born Son of God, of course he's the firstborn as well. But the point, however, in using this language is getting to the idea of status. Status. Uh, it's very similar to what Paul writes in Colossians 1.15, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation. Uh, scholar F.F. F. Bruce says that he is called firstborn because he exists before all creation, but here's the key, and because all creation is his heritage. All creation is his heritage. He stands over all created things as the firstborn, as the one who will inherit all created things, the whole universe. That's not true of angels. Angels are part of the world. Jesus isn't. Angels are part of what the, the son will inherit. Jesus owns the world. He's over the world. But that's what makes the very next thing that the author says so staggering. He who is over the world and outside the world and owns the world comes into the world. The Father brings his firstborn into the world. And this is the message of Christmas, that the one through whom all things were created would be created. And that the one who was fashioned 
the one who has fashioned the world would be fashioned in the womb. Why? Why is that what happened at Christmas? Well, we cannot improve upon this insight from St. Augustine. He says this, listen up. Man's maker was made man that he, the ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread might hunger, that the fountain might thirst, the light sleep, and the way be tired on its journey, that truth might be accused of false witness, that the teacher would be beaten with whips, that the foundation be suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, and that the healer be wounded, and that life might die. Why does he do it? Why is the one who made the world come into the world? Why is he who fashioned the world fashioned in the womb? That life might die. Why? So that you don't have to. This is the gospel. This is the message of Christmas, that the Father sends the firstborn into the world, the world that we ruined, in order to save it and us along with it. What a hero we have in the Son. And so what does such an act of heroism deserve? Well, the answer simply is praise. And so first we've seen the firstborn enters the world, and now we see that the angels worship him. Secondly, the angels worship him. Again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, God says, let all God's angels worship him. Now that comes from Psalm 97. We want to take a closer look at what's happening in that psalm. Psalm 97 is about the good reign of God, of of the Lord over all the earth, which brings joy and gladness to those who acknowledge him rightly as king. And because he is king over all, those who instead choose to worship idols will be put to shame. That's what Psalm 97. And so instead, the call comes from 97. Instead of worshiping idols, worship the true God. In fact, all created beings, even angels, should worship him. And so this is the line from Psalm 97. Worship him, all you gods. All you gods. Now, that doesn't say angels. In Hebrew, it's the word Elohim, which is a common term for um, gods or spiritual beings, oftentimes in, in a pagan sense. But in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation, the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament, when they translated Elohim, they used the word angeloi. You hear angel there, angeloi. So as Hebrews is quoting Psalm 97, the author is, is appealing not to his, his Hebrew Bible, but to his Greek version of the Old Testament. He's quoting directly from Psalm 97 in the Septuagint. But keep this in mind. As Psalm 97, or as Hebrews, is inspired by the Holy Spirit, that means his interpretation of Psalm 97 is correct. This is the proper interpretation of Psalm 97. And then we see something else that's quite interesting. That means that Psalm 97, according to Hebrews, is not simply a call for all people, all created things to glorify God, including angels. In Psalm 97, it's the psalmist saying, worship, worship, worship. But according to Hebrews, the call comes from God. Look again at the text in Hebrews. Again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, not it is said, 
He says, God the Father says, let all the angels worship him. God commands the angelic host to worship Christ. You know that famous scene in Isaiah 6, it gives us uh, that picture of the seraphim winging their way about the throne room of God. And yet even these holy, sinless beings, they have to cover their eyes from seeing the blinding, the, 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 the splendor, the brilliance of the holiness of he who sits on the throne. And they're, and they're worshiping, though. They're singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And in the Gospel of John, chapter 12 and verse 41, Jesus actually says that the one who Isaiah sees on that throne is me. It's Christ. It's the Son, the eternally begotten Son. That's the one... Uh, he's the one that the angels are hiding their faces from. He is the, the, the resplendence of the holy God. Where you again see the superiority of the sun to the angelic host. There's an old Scottish minister, John Brown, like old, old, you know, dead for a couple hundred years. Um, the kind that I read. And he says his place is on the throne. Jesus, his place is on the throne. The angels is before it. This is here. It's a perfect example, a perfect proof for the superiority of Christ. They worship him. He, it's not the other way around. He doesn't worship them. He's on the throne. They're before the throne. And since they have been worshiping him in the heavenly places, it is perfectly fitting that when he's brought into the world, when he comes out of the heavenly places and into this earth, it's perfectly fitting that they should worship him there too. Yes, his throne has changed. It is now a manger. And instead of a palace, it's a shed that, that sits outside of an inn. But it is the same Christ. It is the same Lord of glory. And he is deserving of the same praise. Uh, so you see, friends, on the occasion of, of Christ's birth, the night sky in Bethlehem was lit up with proof that the baby born that night was more than just a baby. No, he was so much more. How do we know? Because angels were worshiping him. Luke 2, 13, 14. Suddenly, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. And so the, the people who were receiving the letter of Hebrews, they might have been tempted to be infatuated with angels. But here's the deal. Angels have been and always will be infatuated with Jesus. This is what they spend their every waking hour doing, praising the Son. Angels are infatuated with Jesus. Here's a question. Are you? Are you? It's an important question to consider this morning. Do, do we admire Jesus in the way that even those sinless angels in heaven do? Now, how can we know if we admire him? Well, we'll worship him. So we see finally, you know, the firstborn enters the world, the angels worship him, but finally the faithful join them. The faithful join them in their worship. Do you lend your voice to the song of the angels? Do you sing glory to God in the highest? Do you want to spend your every waking moment in an in intentional, uh, concerted praise and exaltation of Christ in your thought, in your speech, in your actions, in your affections, in your singing. We have more reason to worship Christ than the angels. J.C. Ryle, in his commentary on, on Luke, in that scene where the angels 
burst on, into the heavens and they sing. He has some really, insights, uh, really, really insightful comments there. Here's what he says. He says, let us mark or let, let us notice um, who they were that first praised God when Christ was born. They were angels, not men. Angels who had never sinned and needed no savior. Angels who had not fallen and required no redeemer and no atoning blood. The first hymn to the honor of God manifest in the flesh was sung by a multitude of the heavenly host. Let us note this fact. It is full of deep spiritual lessons. Why? Well, it shows us what good servants the angels are. All that their heavenly master does pleases and interests them. It shows us what clear knowledge they have. They know what misery sin brought into the world. They know the blessedness of heaven. And they know the privilege of an open door into it. And so he says, let us strive to be more like-minded with the angels. Our spiritual ignorance and our deadness appear most painfully in our inability to enter into the joy which we see them there expressing. What's he saying? He's saying our, our sin, our, our ignorance, our, our lack of affections for Christ, it is most evident when we don't praise the Son the way the angels do. And we have such more, so many more reasons to worship him than they, than they. He says, surely if we hope to dwell with them forever in heaven, we ought to share something of their feelings while we're still here on earth. So let us seek a deeper sense of the sinfulness and the misery of sin. And then we shall have a more deep sense of the thankfulness for redemption. The shepherds learned that from the angels, didn't they? They went straight from that field to the child who was the true shepherd of Israel. And we're told they returned worshiping God, glorifying God. And so, brothers and sisters, do you, do you see that worship is what it's all about? If Jesus is truly the Son of God, the firstborn of all creation, then he deserves one thing above all else from you. He deserves your heart. And worship is the outward expression that our hearts, our very hearts, our souls belong to someone or something. Does your heart belong to Jesus? If it does, you'll worship him. James Montgomery Boyce writes that this will always, there will always be worship when a person finds the true meaning of Christmas, which is to say, when he or she finds Christ to be the Savior. This is how we know the person has found him. There will be worship. But I want to just hone in on that and, and say you need to be cautious, especially this Christmas season, and not get confused because lots of people love singing Christmas songs, Christmas carols. And many of those carols have really rich, accurate, biblical theology in them, but that's not always why they are sung. They're sung maybe for sentimentality, for tradition's sake. They're sung because uh, certain aspects of the Christian faith have sort of been swallowed up with the commerciality of the season. People sing for the same reason that they decorate the tree or hang up the lights or wrap gifts. And I need you to know that that is not worship. That's not worship. Decades ago, uh, there was a pastor by the name of Joseph Ton. And he was expelled from his home in Romania 
by the communist regime that had taken over because of his stance in the gospel, for preaching the gospel. And now, uh, come to the United States, he wrote about the experience there. Um, and, and particularly, he wrote about the traditions of a Romanian Christmas. Uh, a little different than ours here in the States, but every family would slaughter a pig, which was the staple of the Christmas feast. Uh, everybody would carol through uh, the village. They would take turns. The, the children, the young children, one night would go through caroling, and then the, the teenagers the next night, then the young adults, and then the families all together the next night. And, and especially for the children, as they went around caroling, they had this sack with them, that, uh, this bag that they, that, those, uh, that they knocked on the doors and caroled for would load up with, with Christmas goodies and cookies and trinkets. And then on Christmas Day, everybody came together in the village to church to worship. Well, then came communism, and uh, immediately Christmas was outlawed, no longer a legal holiday. Um, Everybody had to work on Christmas, and it was actually forbidden to wish somebody a Merry Christmas or a Happy Christmas. And so for many, those traditions immediately ceased. But for those who were truly born again, those who really knew their Savior, there was one tradition that they could not let go of, even if they still had to work on Christmas, even if they couldn't have a roast pig for Christmas, even if there weren't the exchange of gifts, the one thing they could not give up was the caroling. Ton, the minister, testifies that for many years the police worked hard to stop the people from singing. One year the authorities actually attacked and and beat up um, a, a Baptist group uh, a choir in one particular village, but they were out again the next night, and they were out again the next year, and the year after that. Nothing could stop them, and they were welcomed by many in the village who, even though they were afraid to join them, greeted the worshipers thankfully, often with tears in their eyes. And the question then is, what explains this? Why would these Romanians risk their, their comfort, their safety? Many were imprisoned. Why, why would they risk that for caroling? Well, I think the answer is quite simple. If Jesus is who he says he is, if Jesus is who the Father says he is, the eternal Son, the firstborn of all creation who is sent into creation to save creation, to save the world, if that's true, he deserves at least one thing, our song. If he died for me, I can sing for him. No, no, no. It's not just that I can sing for him. I must sing for him because this worship is the outflow of the love of the heart. And if I recognize all that he's done for me in leaving the glories of heaven, coming into the poverty of this world from cradle to cross to tomb, if I see what he would do for me, then my heart must be for him. And the proof that my heart is for him is that I worship I join the songs of the angels. That's the invitation for you today as well. We must, as the faithful people of God, join together and come and worship. Come and worship. Worship Christ, the newborn king. Let's pray. Almighty God, we do thank you for your word to us this morning. We thank you that your word is profitable and that it is enough It is sufficient for our needs. We thank you that it has revealed to us something of the glories of
Christ. And Lord, we would respond in faith by worshiping him. It is the only proper response. We do pray that this season we would not be caught up in sentimentality, in nostalgia, but truly caught up in earnest, heartfelt, faith-filled worship. And that our songs on earth could echo the songs of the angels in heaven. We pray this for Jesus' sake, that he would receive all the glory. Amen. Number 313 is our hymn of response. 313, Angels from the Realms of Glory. Our worship of the Savior is born out of a belief that he is for us, that what he did is for me. We share with the Apostle Paul that we believe that Christ loved me and gave himself up for me. Then we worship. And uh, the Lord's Supper is a means of confirming that reality to us when we sometimes doubt, is it really for me? Could it really be for me? 
the Lord's Supper is, is Christ coming to us. And he's saying, yes, I am for you. This is my body broken for you. My blood shed for you. And so uh, we partake of this meal to help confirm our faith. Jesus instituted the uh, Lord's Supper uh, with his disciples. Paul records that in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Uh, Because of that serious word of caution that we get from 1 Corinthians, uh, the elders, uh, we, we want to encourage you that... Um, this table, yes, indeed, it is for you if you're believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and if you have been baptized, receiving the sign of belonging to him, and if you are a member of the visible body of Christ, the church. Um, but if these things are not true of you, if, you've not, if you do not have faith, if you've not been baptized, if you don't belong to a church, and even if you do belong to a church but are living a life of, of sin and rebellion or under discipline, uh, then... Uh, we would caution, and the scriptures caution you against partaking today. Um, so if, that's, that, if that is true of you today and you're not partaking, that's fine. Let the elements pass by. Uh, we have prayers that are provided in the bulletin that you could uh, pray uh, along as we partake in this Lord's Supper. And, and think about what it would mean for you to join with us someday in the future. Please find me or one of our elders. We'd love to speak with you about how you could come. Uh, now, that being said... Uh, If you are uh, believing in Jesus Christ, if you're resting in Jesus Christ, if you're clinging to him, that's what it takes to come here. Um, It doesn't matter if you've sinned this past week or if you've sinned this morning. Um, It doesn't matter if you're dealing with, with struggles in the Christian life. This is given to help us get through those struggles in the Christian life. As I often say, this table is not for perfect people, but for people who know that they are not perfect. This is food for those who are hungry, in soul hungering after righteousness. This is medicine for those who feel weakened and sickened by their sin. And truly, these are the gifts of God for for you, the people of God. And so we do invite you, believing sinner, to come and to taste and see that the Lord is good. And we experience him through this meal as by faith, Uh, we are raised even to the heavenly places and we feast upon Christ who is in heaven. And so I exhort you to lift up your hearts. Let's pray. Our Father, we uh, do thank you that uh, it does not depend on our uh, qualifications to come to this table, but your gracious invitation. And so we cling to that by faith. We we do ask that this would be a means of confirming um, our interest in the gospel that truly Christ is for us, that Christ came for us. And would this inspire further worship from us, a life um, that is devoted to the worship of our great God and Savior. We do ask that uh, by faith uh, these elements uh, would 
would be more than just bread and wine, that by your spirit uh, you would um, use these to, to bring us to Christ and that by faith we would feed on Christ's body and his blood and we would receive all of the benefits from him and that we would evermore dwell in him and that he would dwell in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.